At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Yeah, I think that, you know, that was the main goal of, of uh, that was why we chose to go to Tampa Bay this offseason and got the opportunity to to uh, to play with them and, and you know, get into that position of, of uh, optimum, uh, you know, positioning to uh, get ourselves into into the postseason and have that opportunity to put ourselves in, uh, you know, the World Series. So that's something that's that's number one, uh, first and foremost here. Um, and, you know, that goes without saying for everybody else. Uh, as soon as I walked into the clubhouse, you know, that's you got the, the feeling that that's that's the, uh, you know, the mode of operation here as well. So um, something that I'm really excited about and I know everybody else is and I talk about it a lot, um, being fortunate to have the opportunity to, to go there a couple of times and um, be in that, you know, the biggest stage and, and have the opportunity to get back there and, and put ourselves in, you know, a position to do that is something that, uh, you know, is, is the main goal. So, you know, with that said, today was, today was a great win, and uh, I was happy that I was able to contribute. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, July the 25th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Well, Welcome in to another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. What a wild and a wacky weekend. And it's going to be a, a crazy week with a trade deadline coming up, a new, you know, an old uniform being reintroduced, some Mets Hall of Fame candidates being inducted, and of course a huge series against the Braves. Pretty much have an opportunity to put the Braves away and then Cincinnati comes to town. Mets longest homestand of the year need to make some hay, really need to put the distance between themselves and the competition of the National League East. Before, and we got a lot to talk about. Before I get into that, I first want to apologize for the sound quality of the last show where uh, it was funny. I went back and listened. I'm like, well, that sounds like I'm on a conference call. And, and I was embarrassed because it wasn't horrible. I think it was listenable. And I, I got some great uh, feedback on the actual content on the show. But lo and behold, I'm playing with the mic and the equipment today and I'm like I don't understand what's wrong and it was as simple as the USB not being completely pushed in think about that all the technology here and you know ultimately the reason why that sound quality was downgraded was because it was you know you know a micro inch not pushed in and it tells you how 
just like in baseball, the thin margin of error between success and failure that exists sometimes in this world. So anyway, uh, well, you know, when I say it's a wild and wacky weekend, I mean, look, uh, it's always drama filled with the Mets. This team seems to always uh, take a, you know, not the path of least resistance, the path of hardest resistance when it comes to navigating uh, a series and and sure enough, they were able to pull off a, a great series win against the top offensive team. And when I see names like Bichette, Guerrero, Biggio in the lineup, and it's 2021, and it's not Craig Biggio, it's not Dante Bichette, and it's, it's Vladimir Guerrero, but it's Junior, it really is a way to make you feel old. I mean, look, I don't know what age group some of you in the audience are, but I remember Craig Biggio when he was a catcher. When he came up in the you know late '80s, uh, I remember Vlad Guerrero as a rookie. I remember the Mets trying to, or maybe half-heartedly trying to get Vlad after the 2003 season, uh, which would have been a huge coup when there looked to be an opportunity to sign him. There was some concerns about his back, and he wound up going to Anaheim and uh, winning an MVP. So uh, you know it's not that long ago, and of course uh, Bichette. And here's the funny thing about Bo Bichette who uh, looks like a really nice player. Out of the three, Bichette, certainly better than his father, plays a middle infield position. His father was a very average hitter. I'll get to his dad in a minute. Vlad Jr., I don't want to say, look, his dad's a Hall of Famer, and he was a really good player. But with the discipline that he showed, especially in the ninth inning with that Diaz at bat, uh, it's early, but and he's a much different figure, much, you know, his body. The one thing you got to worry about is the the build, Vlad Jr. with a big build like that. Those bodies tend to break down as time goes on, but very early to say that. He might be better than his dad. That's a maybe, but he might be better. And then Biggio, let's see, you know, I think Craig Biggio compiled a little bit towards the end of his career, but in the late 90s with Biggio and Bagwell, with that Houston team, gold, I mean, there's a guy that was a catcher, a second baseman, a center fielder, you know, gold glove level at second base, a guy that could play those kind of positions and play each of them well, that's a really good player. So we'll see. Biggio seems to have his father's defensive instincts over a third. So far offensively, we'll see. Not quite as good. But anyway, you see those three, and then I see Bo Bichette get up in the ninth inning against Diaz. And and look, you had – and it was a very defining ninth inning for Diaz because he blew the save against Pittsburgh right before the All-Star break. And then he came back after the All-Star break and blew the other save to Pittsburgh in that heartbreaking loss just a week ago on Saturday night. And then the Jesse Winker at bat in Cincinnati. And it was basically three games. Now, they came back and won the Cincinnati game. But there's two other games where basically they were three strikes away, the Mets, from being two games better than they where they are now, which is a huge difference when you're in a divisional race. And changes sometimes how you look at the team, believe it or not. It's like, you know, can this be the fourth straight time with two outs, runner in scoring position, ninth inning, where Diaz will give up the hit, the game will be tied, and then you're back into the sauce there with the Blue Jays, a really good offensive team, a team that would be very tough to see them hold down with that free runner at second base. But no, Diaz strikes out Bichette. But it reminds me of his dad, because and I, and I said on Twitter I'd share a quick story. So... Uh, back in the mid to late 90s, I had an opportunity for a few years through contacts to get occasionally one to two times a year, I'd get tickets behind the visiting dugout at Chase Stadium. I remember seeing Sammy Sosa in the early years, Ozzie Smith, um, you know, you know, 
San Diego with Ken Caminetti and and really cool being that close, seeing guys, you know, coming back in the dugout. You get to hear a little bit of the banter in the dugout. You get to banter a little bit with the players. But during that time, you know, Colorado was clearly a team that benefited from Coors Field. And Bichette was the poster child of that. Go to baseball reference and you look at that uh, average. I think he hit like 350, 360 at Coors Field. Majority of his production in his career was at a Coors Field. You look at his uh, OPS plus, he was a slightly above league average hitter. You probably take out Coors Field, he's probably below league average. But anyway, there was a game back in April of 1996 where me and a couple of guys we went there with, and I think there were some people next to us that were doing the same thing. We were riding Bichette the whole game. And, ah, you stink. You can't hit outside of cores. I think he made it out early in the game. And I went to look at the box score before I came on the air just to verify my mind. And it was, it was a slightly different scenario. I thought the home run was later in the game. It was in the fifth inning. But anyway, comes up fifth inning, uh, a runner on against Pete Harnish. I didn't remember who the pitcher was, but it turned out it was Pete Harnish. And sure enough, he hits a bomb of a home run, two-run homer, gives the Rockies a lead. Turns out Larry Walker, and I did not remember this, because but of the box score, hit a home run right after, back-to-back. Rockies wound up winning the game 6-5. to five. But as he came back to the dugout, he looked up into our section right behind the dugout and did one of those, like, you know, home run gestures, the, the waving of the finger, and kind of blew a pseudo-kiss type of deal. And I always remember that, because that's what happens when you trash talk players. They hear. And when they hear, they're going to let you hear it back, uh... Today's day and age, it'd probably be more demonstrative. But when, as Bo Bichette is up, I'm thinking of that story, and I'm like, geez, you know, how time flies. I mean, it seems like yesterday we were watching his father uh, play for the uh, the Rockies. But a huge, and, and I really think um, with the deadline coming up, and I know we heard Zach Scott with John Heyman, and we talked a little bit about that on the, the last program, but the opportunity to potentially acquire whether it be Rodgers out of Minnesota, uh, who's very enticing, Craig Kimbrell, uh, another arm with closing experience to potentially give you that safety net with Diaz. Look, I wanted to work out with Diaz, and I think they have to really ride this out until they absolutely have no other opportunity uh, but to bench him. Because it's not going to be easy at this point in the year to just patchwork together the closer situation. Let's face it, May wasn't great today, you know. Lugo wasn't, has uh, not been himself. He's been up and down. Aaron Loop's been really good, and he's been getting righties out, but still, you know, I don't, I don't know how I feel about him in the closer role at that point. Believe it or not, you see Familia and how he looked today, and I don't know if it's rest, if he's worked on his grip, if maybe he's, you know, healthy now. Um... Look vintage Familia the last, against Cincinnati again today. And I uh, sometimes I wonder if he's a tease. Right before the All-Star break, he gave up that you know home run uh, to the Pirates in a game. And I think the real key is you get him for one inning. You can't push him more than that. Uh, you get him for one inning, I think you get a really good clean inning at him. So it's very interesting. He's in that mix, and he's got the closing pedigree. Look, this is a team that won a pennant with Familia as a closer. So, But I think it would be important as they go down – uh, you know, to to remind yourself that this is a real defining time for Diaz. Today, I thought, was a huge game for him. Good team, one-run game, big hitters in the lineup, and not just big hitters, I mean elite hitters. George Springer, Vlad Jr., uh, Bichette, Simeon. Guy, look, 
there's better hitters in the league, but that's as good as it's going to get. That kind of lineup, top of the lineup, is about as tough as it's going to get. That's a playoff. This was a playoff test for Diaz, and he passed it. Now he was a little, he walked Vlad, give Vlad Jr. credit. He laid off some pitches, did throw the wild pitch. He looks like he maybe gripped it a little bit too much. And I think it was a good play by McCann to go out there and talk to him right before he struck out Pichette, but his slider was nasty, and you heard Rojas late in the game. It's all about mechanics. Getting into that 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 pathway where the slider and the fastball are hard to distinguish, and you saw that today. And uh, when that happens, Edwin Diaz is about as unhittable as a closer as there is. Is it mental? Is it physical? Hard to say. It's probably a little bit of both. But I think having that option, and I don't think Kimbrell's going to want to come here and be a setup guy. I think that's why that's maybe more unrealistic. But with a Rodgers from Minnesota, and I've heard some rumblings that there's still some seriousness to Barrios and Donaldson. And the one name I keep hearing that is, I think would be affordable, and I'll get into Rich Hill because I thought that was a good move, would be Zach Davies. And right now the Mets, if you look, uh, you know, quite simply, they uh, they have a you know they have two TBA actually three TBAs one this week uh, to be announced. I tell them TBDs. One is probably going to be Carrasco uh, this coming weekend against Cincinnati. There's two against the Braves, and it's really hard if it's Vance Worley or a bullpen game or somebody else that we're not thinking of that is down in. Triple A or Double A. At this time of the year, you can't be throwing out games. And Atlanta and Cincinnati are both really good offensive teams. And although I think the Mets' offense is coming around a bit, they really haven't shown that they could win these barn burners. You know, they're a team when they're at their best, where they get good starting pitching, they line up the bullpen effectively for each getting their one inning, and they play good defense. They're not a team that wants to win like they did last week, those fifteen eleven games. So. I thought this was a defining big, big game for Diaz. I didn't like how he looked on Friday. I know he got the save, but they hit him hard. He looked much more himself, and he got a big out against a big hitter, albeit a young hitter, a big hitter with a runner in scoring position. It was at home, not on the road, but still, this was the kind of situation that he was you know, shaky with over the past couple of weeks, so it's nice to see that. Nice to see them get out of that bases loaded jam. Uh, they bent, but they didn't break. Big out by May, big out by Loop, and away you go. The Mets take two out of three. Now, Rich Hill, this is the kind of uh, pitcher that I think more likely you're going to see the Mets acquire. I thought it was important that they were able to get out, and they, they got it. Wait, I understand the prices are expensive. I think waiting till Saturday at 4 o'clock at the deadline, although that's not disastrous, I think the more that they allow these TBDs to come into play, the more they allow their lack of starting pitching depth, all they need, you know, you see Walker get a visit from Rojas Saturday night. You're like, oh, here we go. They really have no margin of error. They've had 16 starters this year. Nobody, and I know there's openers in there, but nobody could go 16 deep in baseball. Think about that. And in a way, these doubleheaders, they're having another one of these tomorrow. I think there was a, a tweet by one of the beat writers, and forgive me, I can't remember who, but they're going to wind up, because of the seven inning games, thanks to the COVID uh, breakout and then the rain and all the bad weather that the spring brought on, they're going to probably play in innings wise uh, the equivalent of six less, five or six less games. That's pretty big for a team that's gone 16 deep in starting pitching. So it's been a bit fortuitous. It allowed them to kick some games to later in the year when, in theory, the pitching would be healthier. Flash, it's not. 
it also helped them in a way. The thing that it really helped them was it got them away from the replace some Mets lineup that couldn't hit. So now you got a better lineup. You got a better shot at winning these games, supposedly now, debatable with the pitching situation. So um, really interesting how this is going to go. I thought Hill was a nice addition. What you saw to him today, five innings, two, three runs. This is what you're going to get. I don't know how he does it, throwing one pitch curveball. It's almost like these hitters. It's like softball where the guy throws a slow pitch. I'm, I know it's it's moving and it's staying away from the fat part of the barrel. Um, the Blue Jays got around on him a couple of uh, uh, early uh, innings. Uh, he wasn't great. He was just good enough. But he's a veteran. He's pitched in big games. He's pitched in the postseason. And uh, look, he might be able to help you if you do wind up getting your starters back. You might be able to switch him to... Uh, a middle innings uh, role at some point, and maybe do some kind of piggybacking with Carrasco as you get healthier, send a guard later in the year. We'll see. Be interesting to see how they play that out, assuming those guys ever come back. Looks like Carrasco's coming back this week. By this time next week, when we do a show, we'll probably have a Carlos Carrasco big league signing. That's the assumption. Let's knock on wood on that. So I like the Rich Hill deal. It was funny in the post game listening to Luis Rojas this is why I'm not the manager, you're not the manager, but Rojas is the manager. I was very, and it may look like a second guess, but I was as I was watching the ball game, and I didn't tweet it out when I first uh, said it, I thought it was a bad move not to pinch hit for Hill, bring him out for the sixth. I do not think, and the Dodgers learned this, and they pulled him after, like, what, four really good innings in a World Series game. I didn't think going through the third time of this any lineup, but specifically this lineup, was a good idea. A lot like Bartolo Colon, once you got through two times, maybe two and a half times in the lineup, you had to turn them over because they got to figure them out. They, they, they knew, you know, very similar situation. So I wasn't surprised when he struggled in the sixth. But Ross explained that they had a lefty ready, the Blue Jays. They felt there was two outs, so the probability of scoring was a little bit less. They wanted McNeil to be the first guy off the bench. They wound up using him in a better matchup against Barnes later. That's why they won the game. And when I heard that, I'm like, you know something? That's a very intelligent, that's how you answer questions of the postgame and impress the few times there's X's and O's scenarios. That was impressive. You would never have heard that out of Mickey Calloway. You never would have heard that. Out of, forget about Terry Collins and Dan Worthen. This stuff would be too far advanced for them. This would, they might as well take an algebra, advanced algebra test, those guys uh, that manage the bullpen. Better shot at them getting it right. But... Tells you you got the right guy, a guy that, like we continue to talk about, seems to know, has a feel for the game, has a feel for his players, knows how to communicate with his players, quells, there's no, there's, there's really no uh, fires to put out, and the few that have perked up has been put out, so uh, you feel really good there. So, Rich Hill, good acquisition, I have a feeling you're going to see another pitching acquisition more like that, I don't think they're going to get in, I, I really don't expect a, 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 a Barrios. I don't expect an ace. I think it's going to cost a lot. I'm surprised I'm still hearing Donaldson's name out there. I'm even questioning if Chris Bryant and that situation is even feasible. I think they're going to try to fill around the fringes. Very important that they invest in this team. Very important. You know, you heard Mike Puma when he was on with me back in May, and he talked about Justin Turner, how demoralized those teams. I call them the Mets purgatory years when Sandy first took over as GM when they were clearly not winning and they wouldn't invest in the team. Now, they're not like that right now. But I think sometimes investing in these players, uh, investing in a team in these players is important because it gives them kind of a boost. But it's risky. 
Rich Hill also in the post game was talking about how chaotic his week has been. How he, you know how his kids and his wife are down in Tampa. He wants to get them back up. Their lives have been all thrown into upheaval. And never discount how that impacts performance, especially in a situation where you have eight weeks left after the deadline. You don't have a ton of baseball. It's not like you could spend the first 30 to 60 days like you do early in the season finding yourself in April and May so that you could get in a groove for the summer. You've got to perform right away. The microscope is on you. Um, the games are bigger, even though mathematically they're the same. They're bigger because there's more amplified focus uh, on the results. Let's face it. You really don't have time to make up mistakes like you did earlier in the year. So keep that in mind as they make big acquisitions. That's going to be the burden. You know, Hill talked about that today, and, and we'll see. You know, he expects to start on Friday. So, um, you know, we'll see if he can continue to give them that plus more. This was a really good lineup. Cincinnati will be a good lineup. They're facing some really good lineups uh, before they go on the road. So they really got to make, hey, this is really an important week, like I said earlier. Uh, they're four games up on Philadelphia. They're five up on Atlanta. They could essentially knock Atlanta back. I don't think Atlanta is going to invest. Who knows? Maybe Atlanta sells after this series. You don't know. I know they picked up a couple of spare parts in Jock Peterson and uh, Stephen Voigt, but, you know, th- those are just fringy, you know, you know, good component players. I shouldn't say fringy. Good component players that normally, you know, they're trying to make up some of the offense they lost with Acuna going out for the year and what have you. They're keeping the Phillies four back. You don't, the real thing for the Mets, the real question we have, and it still exists today even after a nice win, a nice win over the Blue Jays this weekend, is can they get on enough of a streak? Winning series. They don't have to win 10, 12, 13 in a row. Win series, just like they did today, just like they did in Cincinnati. They didn't do it in Pittsburgh, and they didn't do it in Pittsburgh before the break. So that set them back a little bit. They win a couple of those games, the Diaz games, a little bit different scenario right now. Take care of business. Win three out of five against Atlanta. Be great to sweep them. Great to win four out of five. Maybe you split the doubleheader, take two out of three of the others. Win that series. Win the Cincinnati series. If you look at the last 10 days in the standings, the Mets haven't really played great. They played well against Toronto, but they didn't play great against Pittsburgh, and they won the series in Cincinnati. But, you know, they played just good enough to keep the competition par to where they were when the All-Star break happened, or if not, a little bit back. So you just do a lot of little things. You win series and you take two out of three, it doesn't matter what the Phillies do. It doesn't matter what the Braves do. I personally do not think those teams can make enough of a run to be a thorn in the Mets' side. The Phillies, believe it or not, I always said the Braves this whole time, but I just don't think they have it. The Phillies, because they have the two big pitchers in Nola and, and Wheeler, and their offense is, is, is pretty good. I mean, the Braves are better offensively, but they seem to go through similar to the Mets with these brownouts. If the Phillies get any kind of bullpen help, bullpen help then that might be a problem. But I still don't see that team being able to go out there and go on a run um, and put pressure on the Mets the way that the rest of the, the way the media is making it out to be. Uh, I mean, MLB Network, radio, Steve Phillips and, and, and Jensen Lewis were talking about the Phillies like, here they come. And I'm looking at the standings like, what? I mean, come on now, you know, here. So uh, playing better, bad bullpen, got a good manager, I think. I know he's been criticized a lot because of his demeanor. But, um, you know, oh, this is a critical week. You don't want to be here a week from today. You and I talking. And the Mets stubbed their toe. Either had a lousy series against the Braves 
or have a good series of the Braves and get swept by the Reds. You don't want to come here next week and see the Mets either tied for first, behind. That'd take a really bad week to be behind. Half a game up, a game up. You you don't want that. That that you know that would mean they're back in the muck. And if they're back in the muck, come July thirty first, they're going to be in the muck the rest of the year. And guess what? Then you got to say anything could happen. Then a compromised Braves team might get hot. You know, because once you're tied and you're in this space with all these teams, it just takes one good week by them and one bad week by you to change things around. And that could happen. Any team in baseball could go seven and three over ten days. Any team in baseball could go three and seven over ten days and swing it around. You just don't want to see that happen. Phillies are playing Washington. Um, so, you know, the Nats, they're probably in the seller mode and they're probably ready to wave the white flag, but they're still potent enough where, you know, they could give the Phillies and maybe help the Mets out and give them some trouble. So really big series win. They showed me a lot. They got down today. Uh you know, Rich Hill, that decision, again, Louis Rojas keeps winning me over. When I heard him in the postgame, I was like, you know, that's why my opinion means so little. And it made me say, you know what? That really means I, I am watching a manager that really understands the game, really uses information the proper way, and is able to use a good balance and nuance between data and managing the team and understanding his players and understanding what's ahead of him in the days to come with the doubleheaders and whatnot. So sit back. Take a breather the rest of tonight here on a Sunday night, and it starts up again. There's no breaks now. There, you, know, you had a little blow here with the day off on Thursday. Doubleheaders, you know, we're somewhat in the rear of all these games they have to make up. I think they have one more doubleheader. Well, they have the Washington doubleheader and a, and a Miami doubleheader, I think, later on in the summer in August. But for the most part, those crazy games in so many days are over. And, uh, you know, tomorrow is one of those where, hey, if you can walk away and sign up for a split now, do it, especially with a TBD on one of the games. Uh, you got Marcus Stroman, and away you go. It'll be very interesting to see how they play this. Uh, I know they have a lot of other TBDs, but you know McGill's going to get a start in the, t- uh, the Atlanta series. You know Walker's going to get a start. You got Stroman, then you got Hill on Friday, and then sometime at some point Carrasco's going to pop in and do something. So we'll see. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, the black uniforms are returning. And the Mets are going to be inducting some uh, players into the Hall of Fame, the Mets Hall of Fame. Let's talk about that more right after this. Every second, minute, hour, are one day closer. To turn back the clock as we get ready for the city to rock. We bleed our colors. But there was a time we feasted like none other. It's back again as we rep our pastime. Yeah, you heard right. It's black again for a brand new time. Let me make one thing clear that. Watch it all go black. Yeah. We're back, and one of the things about this homestand and this time of the year is that you really get a lot of energy. When your team is good and your team is in the pennant race, there's a lot of energy at the ballpark, and I think you're seeing that at City Field. A long time coming. Yeah, we saw it in 2015. I think, though, that even after that World Series, and there was some good energy in 2016, but for the most part, 
especially in 2019. We had there was that great run where City Field stole the show, and Mets fans really stepped up in August when they were playing the Nats and having some of those wild games at home during that month. But there was always, and it was I'm not blaming the fans because that bullpen was so bad, and Diaz didn't really exude any confidence. I I was waiting to see that today with the energy from the fan base. And I'll be honest, I didn't feel that. I wasn't at the ballpark. I'm watching it at home. And I'm sure there was some nervousness and who knows what kind of booze. But they really were encouraging Diaz. There was a positive energy like, let's get through this. Let's get through this. And I believe, I know that there's no data to support any of this. I believe that that makes a difference. And what I think is really cool And the only complaint I could have about the black uniforms coming out this weekend in the Mets Hall of Fame is that it's right around the trade deadline. So from a a, a radio media standpoint, it's a pain in the neck because you'd like to do that when there's less of a possibility where the whole weekend would be consumed with talk about a big deal or a player joining them. But be that as it may, that's not how marketing a team works. And it's an 11-game homestand. It's in the smack middle of the summer, perfect time to to get big crowds. In theory, you have good weather, and you unveil this situation. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, truth be told, I was never a huge fan of the, of the black uniforms. I am more of a traditional fan when it comes to Mets uniforms. You know what my favorite uniforms are? Uh, you go back, and I like looking at the Mets in 1969, I have to tell you. Those uniforms, the 1969, early 70s, uh, those teams that made the World Series in 69, 73, I like those uniforms. Now, the uniforms now are pretty similar. Of course, they have uh, you know, a mixture. Sometimes they have the blue. I don't know if they wear that. You know, it's funny. You watch the games every night, and sometimes it doesn't register the uniforms that <laughs> they're wearing. But they, they're more traditional now. They got the gray roads. They got the white homes. They don't do all this wacky alternate stuff that you see. Occasionally you have, you know, 4th of July hats or you have some, you know, Players Week. And I think they got a lot of criticism from that a couple of years ago and they scrapped that. But over the last 25 years, you had the black uniforms, you had the snow white uniforms. You've had these blue iterations for the most part. And then occasionally they throw in an old 86, that mid-80s piping or, you know, softball uniforms. That was the big thing back in the 80s. Astros had softball uniforms too. Uh, think about this classic world, this classic playoff series between the Mets and the Astros, and they probably have some of the worst uniforms in both of their franchise history on display. So I didn't like the black uniforms. I'm not this guy that's been making a big deal about it since I heard they were coming back. Credit Steve Cohen. You could tell they're trying to embrace the history of the franchise and the organization, and they're trying to incorporate that into the fan experience. And the players are really picking up on it because. It harkens back to some blue-collar, successful Mets teams like the 2000 Mets. Piazza was in the ballpark on Friday night. Looks like he was having a good time when he and Steve Gelbs were talking. And it harkens back to some really cool times. Even the 06 Mets, because I think they have the black uniforms more identified with the 2000 Mets. The 06 Mets were black uniforms, too. I mean, I think it's only been about, you know, I think the 2015 team was a couple of years, maybe a year after they stopped using them. Um, and I don't know what the reason was. I was happy when it happened. But if you're going to bring the black uniform back as maybe a Friday night or weekend thing once a month in a season, I have absolutely no problem with it. It's not that far off. And look, like it or not, it's part of the team history. 
So I could say it's carnival and it's stunk and I never liked it. But everybody back, it, it, it harkens back to the late 90s and the culture of the late 90s when incorporating black into a uniform was a thing. The Knicks did it. The Charlotte Hornets did it. I think even the uh, the Chicago Bulls had a black uniform, black and red. Everybody was trying to do it. It was a way where they finally said, Eureka, we can make money on extra uniforms and sell more merchandise and incorporate this color, which had become so popular, um, whether it be because of you know the music culture at the time or whatever. I can't quite, you know, I'm not going to get into that. That's I'm not qualified to really get into that kind of social uh, essay on society back then. Sports picked up on the black uniforms. The Mets put it in. I always felt it made them look more carnival because the guys across town were so traditional. But that's what the Mets have always been, the counterculture. They've always been that since they came in. They don't want to be the Yankees. I think there's principles of the Yankees that they can employ uh, that are good with the the striving to winning and the excellence without the arrogance and the hubris and the lack of self-awareness that the Yankees at times have. But um, I, I don't have a problem with it. I really think it's great how excited the players are. And away you go. So that's my feeling on the black uniforms. As long as it's put in a proper place, in a proper context, it became too much of their uniform during uh, probably a 10 to 15 year period. And that's just quite simply not the Mets uniform. It's the gray roads. It's the white home uniform. And I told you, I just think I've seen photos of those 69 playoff games and World Series in 73. Those are the uniforms I like the best. If those were the uniforms the Mets wore... I'd be very happy, but maybe I'm, you know, and I wasn't even born then. I didn't watch the, I'm, I'm too young for the, to, I missed that era. I, I wasn't around, you know, maybe in another life. Maybe I was another person. I was in another life at that point. Who knows? It's always possible. Now, Mets Hall of Fame. I'm not going to go into a big uh, soliloquy about the Hall of Fame and a big hall versus a small hall, because when it comes to team Hall of Fames and the Mets Hall of Fame is kind of their version of Monument Park, you have every right to be about a hall of very good. And it is a beautiful thing to see how the front office now and the team now, and I was in meetings as when they used to bring in independent media, we were in meetings with the Mets and we brought up 10 years ago. And this is not with just some low level employees. These were higher ups in those meetings, as high as you can go in the Mets organization at the time, who basically said that whatever their committee, and I'm sure guys like Gary Cohen and Howie Rose and, luminaries about were on that committee. Jeff Wilpon was obviously on that committee too. Uh, Really didn't want to carnivalize retired numbers. Totally agree on that. And the Mets Hall of Fame. And for the most part, when you look at it, uh, you know, they haven't elected anybody into the Mets Hall of Fame since 2013. I mean, that's a long time. I was there. I went to the, uh, the press event in 2010 when they did I mean, for the, for crying out loud, it took them until 2010 to put Frank Cashin and Dwight Gooden and Davey Dell Strawberry in there. I mean, Davey got mad at me at that that event. I interviewed. I, that's another story for another day. I'll tell you. I might have. I think I've talked about that story where Davey snapped at me at the event. But that's another story for another day. Um, so the Mets have done a bad job. But now, as we get into 2021, and we're two decades away from the you know late 90s turn of the century, you are going to see discussion about more Mets that were part of that. 97, 98, 99, 2000 run, 2001 team maybe. And eventually the conversation will be about guys like Beltran, Wright, Reyes. I don't really think Delgado will ever be there. But those guys eventually, uh, I don't know if they're, you know, Wright probably gets his number retired. 
but the other guys very well would be in the Hall of Fame. You know, look, Piazza got his Mets Hall of Fame before he got his number retired. They waited till he was a Hall of Famer to retire his number, a real Hall of Famer, the Baseball Hall of Fame. So what do I feel about the three guys that the Mets have brought in to uh, re, you know, elect them into the Hall of Fame? None of these three should have their numbers retired, so let's put that out there. I think the next guy to get his number retired is David Wright, and I think the Mets should keep that exclusive. And the only players I think that potentially should be on the table with that very well could be Carter and Hernandez. And I think you could make the argument both ways. That's not what today is about. A different argument at a different time. No problems with Edgardo Alfonso. Edgardo Alfonso was uh, a popular player during that era. He was the second best offensive player to Piazza. Was uh, had huge postseason hits against Arizona, the Grand Slam against Bobby Chenard. I was in the stadium. I was sitting in the last row of the upper deck, game three of the division series against the Giants the day before the Bobby Jones one-hitter when Alfonso in the eighth inning beat Rob Nem with a single down the line. Uh, left field line to tie the game, a game they'd go on to win in 13 with a Benny Agbayani home run. That was a tough closer, Rob Nen, at the time. That was a, uh, a, I mean, the stadium was shaking. And he was a clutch player. There was nobody in that lineup. Maybe even you'd want Fonzie up over Piazza at that point. That you would want up in that spot, and he was the right guy, and he got a hit. And even Joe Torre, and maybe this is uh, hyperbole, Joe Torre said going into the Subway Series that they almost game plan pitching-wise to neutralize Alfonso, thinking that if they neutralized Alfonso, they could deal with Piazza, and then nobody else could really beat them, almost like a, a basketball team tries to neutralize their first or second best player. So it's interesting how they did. So I have no problems with Alfonso. Career got cut a little short because of back issues. Uh, after 2000, he just declined precipitously, lost his power, was more of a league average to so a below league average player. But Love Fonz. He had a chance to meet him when he played for the Long Island Ducks. I think it's cool that they're bringing him back. This is like one of the first non-Piazza guys from that era that I, wa- I grew up watching that gets to be put in the Pantheon. Uh, John Matlock, I did not watch John Matlock pitch, but a very underrated pitcher. I'll tell you what, uh, you know, his Mets years, he was a 500 pitcher. But here's a guy who had, uh, you know, one year, 1974. Here's the interesting part. His 1974 season where he was 13 and 15 with a 2.41 ERA, when you look at it from a statistical breakdown of wins above replacement over a baseball reference, it's better than DeGrom's Cy Young year. It was better than Tom Seaver's 1969. It's better than Santana's first year with the Mets. It's better than uh, Pedro Martinez's great year in 2005 with the Mets. Only a few p- players, uh, that's the fifth best pitching performance in Mets history behind Good in 85, two of Seaver's 71 and 73 seasons, and DeGrom's first Cy Young in 2018. I think if John Matlock, and that was always the issue for those that, and again, I wasn't born, so I'm going by those who watched it and I've had conversations and read books, the Mets' offense was always a problem during those years. Uh, you know, they were a, a team that, you know, quite honestly couldn't score. I mean, the 71, 74 Mets lost uh, in 91 games. They scored 572 uh, you know, runs, and I'll take a quick look here. Those 572 runs was good for, uh, let's see, next to last in the National League. Only the Padres were. So if Matlock played for a team that actually had some offense, I have a feeling he could have won 20 games, not once, not twice, but maybe three times or more. Uh, He's a guy that went deep into games, pitched well over 200 innings. Looks like after he left the Mets in 1977, he had one good year in Texas, really good year in Texas. And then he fell off the the wayside, probably a little bit of, uh, you know, 
health issues, it looks like. And I know recently he was a coach in the Astros organization, and I think they basically uh, threw him aside as they got more analytically inclined. I'd have to look that up. But I don't have a problem with Matlock in the Mets Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, I think part of it, you, you're you looking at his numbers more advanced now because I think if you didn't have advanced statistics, you probably wouldn't look at him in the same way. And those like the Howie Roses and the Gary Cohns who watched those Mets teams knew how big of a player he was. I mean, look, he was 14-16 and 16 on the 73 team. Um, again, another team that went, went to the World Series. And in that series, if you go and look at his postseason, I'll look at it real quick. Um, you know, he um, – that's his postseason batting. I should have be able to get it up. Why is it always like he can't get postseason pitching? He won a big game, a complete game shutout against the Reds in the 73 NLCS. And he was 1-2 and two against the A's in the World Series, but, but nothing – he had a whip under one. I mean, let's put it that way. So he wasn't because he was uh, he was pitching poorly, so I have no problem. Now, believe it or not, the guy that when I and, – and, and I have no problem with him being in the Mets Hall of Fame. But the only reason I believe I'm okay with it is because of his work as a broadcaster, and that's Ron Darling. Look, Ron Darling is a great broadcaster – and he's a great guy. He's a guy who's who I interviewed when he had his book came out uh, a while back. I know uh, recently my brother met him at a, at a card show, and he was really good to my nephew. He's a really good guy, you know, really first-class guy, really smart guy. And he wasn't a bad pitcher. I think he was – he was. they call him the number two behind Doc, but a lot of times I felt he was the number three. I think Bobby Ojeda was the number two in 86 – and I think David Cohn took that in 88 afterwards, and to a certain degree, Frank Viola when he came in. Darling never really, to me, you know, cemented himself as the number two. And he did have the big game four in Boston with the Mets down 2-1. Not an easy place to pitch, his hometown. And he didn't pitch poorly at all in game one. He lost one nothing, But he didn't pitch great against Houston in the NLCS. And he lost, he had to pitch poorly in game seven and 86 pitched poorly in the 88 Game 7. And, you know, quite honestly, his career after 88, when he had one of his better years, won 17 games, declined pretty quickly. And he was a pretty unhappy camper when he left the Mets towards the end. They were jerking him around from the bullpen to the rotation a whole nother time. So uh, as a player, again, not a bad Mets career. Not a bad Mets career at all. But certainly not at the level. And if you look, you still want to rank him, uh you know he's he's um you know he's a he's a very good player not sure he's Mets Hall of Fame not sure he had the cachet like the other big names on that team but because of his broadcasting career along with his playing career I have no problems with it and I think it's pretty cool that they're now not they've honored Keith Keith uh, Keith got honored before he was a broadcaster but now as a broadcaster he would have been a shoe in if they didn't do it and now Ron gets in and eventually I think you're going to have to put Gary Cohen in there uh, I think he deserves it, and you get the whole booth in there, and away you go. Uh, you know, you've put Ralph Kiner has his, you know, he's in the Mets Hall of Fame. Uh, they have the, the microphone up there, right? So, I mean, he's not in the Mets Hall of Fame, but he's got his microphone retired. But they got Bob, well, they, no, they do. They have Bob Murphy. 1984, they put Bob Murphy in. They got Kiner, Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson, and, um, you know, hey, look, uh, you know, why not Gary Cohen at some point? So that's my whole thing. So it should be a fun weekend. You kind of have my thoughts on, I think they just have to be careful. You don't want this Hall of Fame thing to become an event where you bring a guy back, like Robin Ventura, nice Met. I'm not sure he belongs in the Mets Hall of Fame. 
He played for them for three years. Had big moments. Play for them. You know, if you start getting to that, then you're just having a weekend day to draw fans to the ballpark, have a ceremony, and get nostalgic. You got to have some standards for the Mets Hall of Fame. It's not all about numbers, like the Baseball Hall of Fame. You don't. You could have a bigger Hall of Fame. The Hall of Very Good with a Team Hall of Fame. Uh, there has to be some. Uh, element of popularity like well Alfonso or Mookie Wilson who's a very popular Met could make the argument he's not really he's in the Mets Hall of Fame he's not really a Hall of Famer but he was with the Mets for a long time he's very popular um so you know I'm, a, I'm not as stodgy about the team Hall of Fames or as uh prickly as I would be about the baseball Hall of Fame but you get my drift all right let's take a quick break when we come back we'll wrap up your listening to the Talking Mets podcast we'll be back with more right after this it's exciting to reminisce about Johan Santana's no-hitter, the first in Mets history. But do we remember who quite literally put his career on the line to preserve the moment? Mike Puma, New York Post beat reporter and author of the book of These Walls Could Talk, certainly does. 3-1 coming to Molina. And a fly ball deep left field. Back goes Baxter onto the track. He makes the catch! What a play! And Baxter may be hurt. Yeah, and the thing was, Baxter at that point was just starting to get some uh, decent playing time for the Mets, and he had a he had a pretty good OPS. He was, you know, he was a lefty bat. He was he was starting to produce a little bit. It was the it was kind of the peak of his career there. Uh, you know, that that previous two months of the, you know, because that was June first, so the first couple of months that 2012 season was the peak of his career. He's he's starting to play, and then uh, he gets hurt making that catch, and he's never the same again. You know, he, he, he tried to come back. Uh, he was with the Cubs, actually, in 15, uh, uh, the year the, the Mets went to the World Series, and uh, just just never got it back. And, it, uh, you know, it, the, the thing about it is, at least you, you go out and you're remembered for something big. And, you know, Mets fans will never forget Mike Baxter. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. Dot com. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. First quick thing before I get to a couple of emails from listeners here. And of course, if you want to send me an email, Mike Silvat, talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, love to hear from you. Love to hear your thoughts about the show. Good, bad, indifferent. Always try to read them. Maybe not every week, depending on the topics and conversations. But I encourage you, if you're listening, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com, no G. Good, bad, indifferent, love to hear from you. I'm humbled when you take a few minutes of your time to actually write. Um, you're going to hear, I'm already, as I was during the break, scrolling through the Twitter feed, seeing names like Javi Baez and Trevor Story. Uh, I just don't think the big name free agent, uh, big guys are going to get traded. I'm not saying absolutely. I think the Mets have some good Top in the top five, six, seven, they have some really good prospects. I don't think the Mets want to give those guys up, especially for guys that are going to be on their walk year. And the media is going to throw names out there because that's what you got to do between now and Saturday at four o'clock. You got to generate as much interest as possible, as much talk. This is the regular season version of the winter meetings. So everybody throws names out there. I mean, they did this with the Yankees for years, and I'm sure they're going to do it with the Yankees now. And They've done it with the Red Sox. The Mets, because of their owner, because he's got deep pockets, now they're going to get thrown into this. I mean, you have Lindor at short. He's going to be back. He's probably going to be back by September 1st. 
uh, yeah, you can start moving Javi Baez to third or second, but that that's the kind of stuff that gets you in trouble. That's not the Mets' needs are another starting pitcher, and like I said, it really would be nice to have somebody that has closing pedigree that's okay with coming in here because I don't want to just boot Diaz, but I still have this gut feeling that as time goes on, and he he passed a big test today, a big test. But Diaz has to – this is make or break for him in terms of being an elite closer for a championship club. He's got to show that what happened against the Pirates and the Reds was a blip and that this is not going to be the roller coaster in a playoff series against the Giants and the Dodgers and the Padres because I don't really think they have that backup on the roster unless you want to talk about Familia, who looked every bit the closer today, but we know what Familia's been since his second act here in New York, so – so just to take a step back. I think the Mets are going to be more likely to acquire exact Davies and an impact bullpen arm than they are about a Javi Baez or a Trevor Story or a Chris Bryant. Maybe I'm wrong. It would really be nice to get another bat in this lineup. And and, and I think J.D. Davis is a guy that potentially could go. But I think and, I, and it's a shame because I think he's I know he made a bonehead play today in the field, but he's he's a good hitter. I think he's improved at third. And uh, I've always liked J.D. Davis. I've always liked J.D. Davis. So anyway. A um, couple of quick emails before we wrap up here, and let me get to it. First, Brian Donovan. Brian, I want to thank you for uh, listening to the show. And Brian, uh, and I'll paraphrase, uh, you know, he was really pumped up. I was able to pump him up after my uh, last program, talking about how he was emotionally investing in this team after what they did after that horrible loss on Saturday night last week. Really showed me that they're worth investing in him. Uh, Brian talks about how he loved the 2015 team, which I do as well. Um, but he's grown to love this current 2021 team, and he just thinks that they're better. And they didn't have his full confidence every night. The 2015 team felt the Nationals were ready to make that run. And everybody, Brian, everybody, myself included, you go back. I was doing you know uh, a podcast, an all-New York sports podcast at the time called The Weekend Watchdog. And I had talked about the Nats making that run all year. And I was wrong. Um, and uh, Bryce Harper won an MVP. Look, do I think this Mets team is better? Um, I think they're more balanced. The starting pitching certainly not better. And I think the bullpen's better, and I think the offense is better. And uh, I think they have overall more resources to go out and improve their team at a higher level than maybe Sandy Alderson did. He kind of lucked into Cespedes at the last minute. So I agree with you. Um there's a lot of similarities where, you know, this team kind of is not having the best regular season. And when they get into the tournament, by that time you hope DeGrom is back. Maybe they acquire another starting pitcher, another bullpen arm. Their offense is healthy. They're going to be a tough out. I know they're, they're probably, if they win this division, they're going to play probably uh, one of the NL West teams. I mean, I don't see how they don't because, well, it depends on their seating, you know, one, two, three. I guess they wouldn't, but there's a chance, other than the Brewers, I think they would play one of those West teams. Hi, look at these three teams potentially making the playoffs from out West. So there's a high chance they are. Um, it's going to be tough to beat those teams, and I don't think anybody wants to face the Mets in a short series. Just like I don't think they want to face Milwaukee, because Milwaukee's got some good pitching too. So when that when these teams make the playoffs, all that's going on now means absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter how many games you win in the regular season, you're back to 0-0, zero and zero, and it's a five- or seven-game series, and away you go. So thank you, Brian, for uh, for tuning into the program and sending me a nice note. Uh, and then Philip Johnson. Philip Johnson, another uh, fellow over in the U.K., 
wants to know what to talk about Robinson Cano for next year. So Philip wants to talk about Robbie Cano. What do you know? Um, here's the thing uh, about Robbie Cano. I wouldn't just throw him away. I think he, uh, you know, steroids aside, performance enhancers aside, guy could hit, hit very well last year. They could certainly have used him during the replacement days. And some nights, I think even now you could use his bat. Uh, there is going to potentially be a DH with a new CBA, so they're going to be in the need for another bat. And, you know, the complexity here is, is who's going to take his contract. He's got a no-trade clause. Uh, you know, I don't think the Yankees are ready to help the Mets and open up. I think that's one of the teams he would go to. You could release him and absorb that. I don't think that's going to help them with the luxury tax. You you potentially want to sign a Conforto. You potentially have to re-sign some of your pitchers like Syndergaard, like potentially Stroman or somebody else on the market. So that $24 million, which was not on the books this year because they didn't have to pay it, is now coming back and going to be somewhat of a problem going into this winter. So you have to figure out if, that's mo- if that money is going to hinder you from improving the roster, why not keep them? Unless you could trade him and, and somehow find a suitor, I just don't think. And, and, and look, the bigger part here is this. How do the players feel about him coming back? I heard they liked him. I don't know how they feel about him now with the whole performance-hancing stuff. There's probably more to that story than we know. But you know, it wasn't like he was a disliked guy. And I think you know some of the guys like Jimenez, Rosario, are not around anymore. But I think Lindor will have a lot of say into that. You know, What does Lindor think about him? What's their relationship? How does he feel? You know, Pete Alonso, another team leader, Jacob deGrom, guys like that. So, uh, look, he's got a couple more years left. Um, you know, you got to resign deGrom. There's a lot of things that this conversation probably, and this is not a knock, Philip. This is a good question, and thank you for listening. This conversation has zero to do with the trade deadline, but but it's a good question because what you do at the deadline, potentially bringing in a Bryant, let's say Chris Bryant, or bringing in a player that is a free agent that maybe you want to sign. You know, you bring in a Chris Bryant or you bring in a Josh Donaldson who has a contract as well that extends out over multiple years. You're creating some tightness in your payroll to get Stroman back, to sign Conforto back, to improve the roster this winter. You worry about that later, and with a rich owner, you have flexibility to do things like go over the luxury tax. But it will be interesting what happens with Cano. I'm sure his salary is playing into the, some of the decision-making now. Um, and maybe they have a good idea of what they can do with it. So this is a team, uh, like I've been told, there's a lot of smart guys on this team. Steve Cohen is a forward thinker, and he wants to win. And you can't ask for more than that. So it's going to be a fun week, guys. It's going to be a real fun week. I'm going to caution you on a couple of things. The Mets don't need to go out and make a move for the sake of making the move to win a headline. They need to make the right move. They need another starting pitcher. They need another bullpen arm. would absolutely be nice to get a Chris Bryant or a Josh Donaldson, but you don't want to make a bad trade to win a headline, to feel good, give away a prospect that's going to come back to haunt you. I'm all for going for it. you got to make the right move. I'm never about prospect hugging. I'm not a phony. I'm not going to turn my... My two, change my two now. You got to go for it. You have a chance to win the division, get in the tournament, and get to the World Series. This team can do it, and and I think Degrom is going to be healthy. It looks like the reports there are pretty good, and uh, you know who knows? Maybe he starts a game this week. I doubt that. It looks like early August is what they're looking. So I don't think you're going to see him as one of the TBDs this week. TBA, TBD. Um, but you also don't want to just give away your top prospects when uh, you're minimally improving the roster. And I think on the offensive side. Unless there's an injury we don't know about, unless Lindor's out for the whole year, 
I think bringing in and sacrificing those type prospects just to get Bryant or Donaldson. Donaldson probably not because you're taking on money. Bryant, you might have to. They might try to play that because who knows what San Diego's trying to do with some of these other teams. Um, we'll see what happens. So anyway, that's my feelings on uh, the trade deadline. That's my feelings on this team. Hope you enjoyed this program. A lot to talk about. This is going to be one of the more fun weeks of the year. This is, again, like I said earlier this week when we did the, the, the show after the road trip, this is why we have all those hot stove conversations in the winter. It's not just to play GM. It's to watch meaningful, high-pressure, high-intensity games, getting the thrill of the victory after the DS strikeout. And as much as it's uncomfortable, the stress of going through it, that gives you the adrenaline and why you're a baseball fan, why you're a Mets fan, why you love this so much. So anyway, I want to thank everybody for joining uh, me today. Again, you can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another podcast this week. Who knows when? Maybe sooner than Sunday. The trade deadline beckons. Until then, take care, everybody. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.